am excited about today. I hope you are as well. I was having a short six and a half hour conversation with a friend of mine the other day. And I was talking to him and I said, Kyle, if Jesus was at my house and I called you and I said, dude, you got to get over here, Jesus is here. You'd rush over, right? And then if you walked in the door and Jesus is sitting on my couch, wouldn't you expect something to happen? Wouldn't you expect him to do something? I have a really hard time imagining that you have an encounter with Jesus and nothing happens, right? And so I have this expectation that he's going to do something, whether that's a a healing or a word or peace or comfort. He's going to bestow something upon me because that's who he is. And so I want to come in today, and since we had that conversation, it's been my, my mentality going forward And that's how I want to approach every time that I am here and every time that I'm having dinner with somebody who's another believer. Because if we really believe that if two or three are gathered in his name that he's there, then shouldn't we expect something? I shouldn't expect to walk away with nothing after meeting with Jesus. Right? So I am excited about what God's going to do today because that's who he is, not because anything I do or what the worship team does, or what anybody here does, but because that's who God is. And he loves his people, and he wants to meet you right where you are. We have been in this upside-down kingdom series, which has been really great, right? I've really enjoyed it. Um, It's basically talking about how the kingdom of God is opposed to the kingdom of the world. And how we live in this world, but we're not of this world. And so we have to be a little bit different and operate in the kingdom of God and not in the kingdom of the world. And that can be tricky. And we've heard some really good messages about mercy and healing and friendship for several weeks about the upside down kingdom. And I've truly enjoyed it and it's been really beneficial. Has anybody else enjoyed it? That was at least a quarter of you. That's really good. That's pretty good odds. How many of you remember King of the Hill? Now, a lot of you are thinking of the TV show. So what I'm actually referring to is the playground game. I think half and half maybe have which way you went on that. We're trying to separate the wheat from the chaff. And so... What I'm referring to today is the playground game, King of the Hill or King of the Mountain. We're not not talking about propane or propane accessories. (laughs) We are are talking about the game. Now, how many of you guys played the game King of the Hill or King of the Mountain when you were a kid? All right. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the game, it's pretty simple. There is a pinnacle or an ascent of some sort. It could be a mound of dirt. It could be hay bale. It could be, for added danger, you could do the jungle gym, okay? Um, But any type of pinnacle would work. And the object of the game is to get to the top of the hill and stay there. The object of the game for everybody else is to get you off the top of the hill so they can be king. It's a great game for two major reasons. Number one, it burns a lot of energy, which is what the teachers wanted in the first place. Because some of us in this room predate 
ADHD medication. <laughs> so this pulling and pushing and scraping and tugging and shoving and doing whatever you can to get that person off just so you can get to the top, and now everybody else is against you, right? Because you got to maintain that. And the second reason it's a great game is because it's a great analogy for life. Because so often that's how we do things, right? We are constantly trying to maintain our position at the top. We push, we shove, we are Americans. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, we work harder, we push further, we stay the extra hours, we sacrifice everything else to reach that thing, right? Don't we do that? We want to be the best. We want to be the best at whatever we do. We want to be the best family. We want to have the best kids, have the best spouse in the best house with the best car, have the best job, and be the best at that job. And then we want to be the best church, right? We want to be the best church in town, don't we? And then we want to be, football season's coming up, you want to have the best school in the best state, in the best country. That's what we want. We want to be the best. If you ain't first, you're last, right? You ever watch the Olympics and there's a guy, let's say it's the 100-meter dash, and there's a guy from the U.S. and he finishes second, and you're like, come on! What a loser. I can't believe that you would go all the way over there and finish second. The guy beat 99% of the entire world. And we're mad because he's not the best. There was a group of guys years ago who also wanted to be the best. And in fact, they would argue about it fairly often. And we called them the disciples. And they would go around and they would argue about who was going to be the best in the kingdom. And I don't know what that looked like. Maybe it was how many demons you cast out. That was the ranking system. I don't know what that looked like, but there are so often that that's what they would do. And, and if you don't believe me, if there was a little bit of a rivalry going on, John in his gospel, not once, but twice, mentions the fact that he can outrun Peter. He was the first one at the tomb, and he made sure you knew about it. And then if that wasn't enough, he has to come back later and remind you. That's right, and, and he's the one that Jesus loved. That's right. In the Greco-Roman world that they lived in, status was everything. And where you sat at the table mattered. Your place in society mattered. You didn't want to be at the bottom. You wanted to do whatever it took to be at the top. So I want to jump into a scripture this morning. And if I'm going to, Emmy, you're going to have to help me. All right. It says, then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. 
What is your request, he asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. Now, it is bad enough if you're trying to circumvent yourself, but you brought your mother into it. (laughs) You brought your mom to work and had her plead your case for you. This is like a new level of low, I think. And he goes on. He said, but Jesus answered by saying to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Oh, yeah. We got this. We know exactly what we're going to do. And Jesus said, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. And when the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. Now, indignant is a big word for ticked off. (laughs) They were mad. They brought their mother to work, tried to get them to put them in a position higher than them. And they're not happy about it. But Jesus called them together and he said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people. And officials flaunt their authority over those under them. And this is key. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in this, we see this competition. We see this rivalry between them, right? Because they want to be the best. Now, we've been talking about being and living in the, in the upside-down kingdom, but don't you want to be good at it? I mean, it's one thing to just live in it, but don't you want to be good at being a good kingdom citizen? I want to be the best. That's right. But don't, don't you want to be good? I'd have, some, we're all going to serve as an example, okay? Some of us are going to be good examples, and some are going to be bad examples, but you're all going to serve as an example for the kingdom. So I want to be a good example. I want to at least be remotely decent at being in the kingdom. So if we're going to be in the kingdom and live by the kingdom's rules, then we need to look and see who the king of the kingdom is and see how he operates and see how he sets his rules up. I'm going to go to a passage of scripture that is, um, it's called the Christa Psalm or the Song of Christ. Uh, actually, in, in the following ver- in verses 6 through the end, it became a hymn in, in the first church, in the first century. They would sing this to each other. But this is Paul talking And he's talking about how to be good at being in the kingdom. And he says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of yourselves, thinking of others. Sorry, that's how we normally do it. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. 
You must have the same attitude that Christ. Now, he doesn't say it's a decent idea. Here's a novel thought. Maybe you should have the same attitude that Jesus had. Now, he says you must. He said you should. He said you ought to have the same. Depending on which translation you read, have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And though he was God, he did not consider equality with God as something to cling to. Now, this cling to right here, some of your translations will say to grasp. That means to take by force, to seize it. So what the scripture is saying is Paul is saying that he did not consider equality with God, even though he was God, Jesus did not consider equality with God as something he had to take by force. So the next verse, instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. I want to stop right there for just a moment. He did not consider it equality with God. He did not consider equality with God as something he had to take by force. Okay? Amy, if you could go to the next slide for me. What we see here is the God of the universe. This is the Jesus who created everything. Everything was created by him and for him and through him. And in him we live and move and have our being. That Jesus did not consider the throne room of God as something he had to take by force, but instead he humbled himself. So he starts off here as God. This is on your notes. You have notes today. This is the first time for me. I don't like it because I have to stick to them. <laughs> so God is where we start. But it says that he humbled himself and became a man. Amen. Now, I want you to understand the word humble, and it's used twice in this passage, to humble yourself is to stoop low. It's to lower yourself. The word also says that he emptied himself. It says he gave up his divine privileges. The Lord of the universe stepped from divinity to humanity. It doesn't get much lower than that. He left the throne room of God and stepped into this flesh suit. The creator became the created and was born as a man, but not just a man. See, he could have been born as king. He's the son of God. He can do whatever he wants to do. At his word, things change. He could have came as a king and ruled the entire place, but he didn't. The scripture that we just read said he came as a slave or as a servant. So not only did he have to step down 
from divinity to humanity, but now he takes the next layer down and becomes the bottom somewhat of society, right? Now he's a slave. And not only is he a slave, he doesn't even get to die in an honorable way. He goes down to a criminal's death. He died on a cross. Not because he was such a great guy, because that's the lowest form of death you can get. It's a stair step down. If you want to be good at the kingdom, you got to do what Jesus did. And how did Jesus operate? He lowered himself, he humbled himself, he emptied himself for my sake. But the next verse gives us one of these, my favorite words, which is, therefore. Now, the old preachers would say, if there's a therefore, you got to find out what it's there for. It's there because of Jesus humbling. Because he did that, because he stepped from divinity to humanity to a man to a slave and died a criminal's death, because he emptied himself out completely. Do you realize that Mike Wells, who's a great teacher, always said, the man who did everything did nothing. Do you realize that Jesus didn't really do a whole lot, if you really think about it? Because he says, I don't do it, it's the Father. I do what the Father says, I go where the Father says to go, I heal when he says to heal, whatever the Father says, I do. He was a complete servant to whatever God wanted. Everything he did was because God told him to. And because he did that, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because, and you can go to the next slide, because of the stair step down, God does not stair step him back up, but escalates him above all other things and puts everything under his feet. He gave him dominion over all things because of his willingness to serve. Write this down. In the kingdom of God, it is service over seizure. You see, in the way we operate in the world, we gotta take it. You gotta take what's yours, right? We gotta go and we gotta snatch it, we gotta work and we gotta do, but that's not the way of the kingdom. In the kingdom of God, you don't take it by force, you serve because you can't take it by force. There's a quote, and it's a really good quote, and it's kind of a long quote with, by some people I do not know from a book I've never read, but it's a great quote. And it goes like this. Maybe. 
There never comes a time when grace ends and the self has to begin again. I love that line right there. There never comes a time when grace ends and yourself has to begin again. And this applies to what we call our service as much as to any other part of our Christian lives. In no place do we see the need to know the way of grace more than the impartation of this life to others. Our service to our fellows does not come from strained efforts on our part to live for them, but rather from seeing somebody, Jesus, doing so, and then simply making ourselves available to him that we may be a channel of his grace and power Basically, what that is saying is we are to be imitators of Christ. We are his ambassadors here on earth. After the resurrection, he could have just said, it's done. We're done. But he didn't. He didn't set up a throne in Jerusalem and sit there for thousands of years. That's coming, but not yet. He left it to us. And if we are going to be ambassadors or Christians, which means a little Christ, then we need to do what he does. And we do that by emptying our own self and allowing him to work through us to serve people the way that he served people. It is an emptying of our own self. John said it, John the Baptist said it very well. I must decrease so he can increase. So we must empty ourselves. Come to the next slide and write this down. In the kingdom of God, down is the way up. You stoop low. You do the things. You serve God. You serve others. That's how you become good at being in the kingdom. But I will tell you this. It matters how you serve. Because you can serve out of selfishness. You can serve out of selfish ambition. Paul talked about those who preach Christ out of selfish ambition. And he even said that some of those who go out and they speak just to make life hard for me. But either way, Christ is preached. You can go and you can do and you can serve and you can do all those things, right? And you can pour yourself out so everybody else can see how awesome you are. And if you do that, congratulations, you've got your reward. But that's not an emptying of yourself. That's selfishness. C.S. Lewis said it like this. Victor quoted Lewis last week, and I told him afterwards, I think he's like the 35th apostle. He says, for you will certainly carry out God's purpose, however you act. But it makes a difference to you whether you serve like Judas or like John. That's deep. You'd have to drive a railroad spike into C.S. Lewis's brain for us to be on the same IQ level. But that's good. It makes a difference on how you serve. 
You can serve like Judas. Judas did everything else the rest of the disciples did. Remember that? He went and he cast out demons. He healed. He did all those things for Judas. John, the beloved, loved Jesus. And there is a difference. So what does that look like? 2022, Crossing Church, Mena, Arkansas. What does that look like for us? You know, so often when we talk about serving others, we, we, us, us good Christians have come up with this amazing phrase to help us get out of it. And it is, that's not my calling. Right? How many times have you heard that? That's not my calling. We need somebody to work in a children's group. Not my calling. We need somebody to help with the youth. Not my calling. Here's what I think. This is one of those things like Paul would say, this is Paul, not the Lord. This is Tony. Not saying this is from the Lord. I think the vast majority of people who say it's not my calling honestly have no idea what their calling is. And I believe this, and you may not like this, and if you have a problem with it, please, please, after the service, come up and talk to Victor about it. <laughs> and y'all can square this away, and we can all be at peace. But I think the vast majority of people don't know their calling because they haven't served long enough to find it. So many times we find our calling through our service. Let me tell you something. If the God of the universe can stoop low and become a slave, there is nothing that is below you. You can pick up carpet. You can scrub a toilet. You can change a diaper. I promise you this whole week, I've been studying this, and I realized all the toes I was stepping on were in my own shoes. <laughs> and I feel like that's the way God operates, that so many times when he gives us something to dig out, it's because he wants to dig it out of us. So how do we serve? If we look around this place and around this room, there's a lot of places you can serve. Zeke made a request in the video, which timed in perfectly, thank you, for help in the children's ministry, for help with youth. You can talk to Josh or Jessica, and they would be glad to let you get low with some kids. And Zeke needs help because he deals with teenagers, and they're teenagers, so we need a lot of adults because they're everywhere. You can set up chairs. You can take out trash. You can take up the offering. You can count the offering. You can pray for people. 
There are a gauntlet of things. There are people here every week who do all kinds of things right here in this place that makes it work. There are people right now watching the hallways to make sure our kids are safe and making sure you're safe. This, this may surprise some of you. All of this doesn't happen spontaneously. God loves this place, but not enough to miraculously do it. He called us to serve. And there are, there are meals you can cook. There are people you can partner with where you are providing meals. There is babysitting so circle groups can happen. You can lead a circle group. You can cook for a circle group. You can do a lot of things right here. But it goes beyond these walls. Jesus didn't sit in the temple all day and just wait for people to show up. He went out. I heard something the other day and I thought it was great. It said that Jesus didn't hang out with sinners. Sinners hung out with Jesus. Because they saw it in him and they wanted to be like him. Some of us need to look at how we can serve our families. Husbands, serve your wives. Wives, serve your husbands. Parents, serve your children. And children, serve your parents. You may be at work and you need to do some stuff that you don't, that is not your job, but you need to do it. You may need to serve in that capacity. You may need to serve in the community in some capacity. You may need to, and there's some of you, a lot of you are doing this, and I commend you, but maybe it's time for you to foster care or respite care or work with CASA or work with the call. There are lots of things you can do for children. You may need to go sit at the nursing home or at the hospital. And I know the rules are a little bit funny now with hospitals, but it doesn't mean you can't sit out in that parking lot and pray. Doesn't mean you can't call them and say, what can I do to help here? If Jesus is our example, we need to operate in the way that Jesus operated. And it's by serving. If you are a parent, you know that in your house, you are the authority, right? Your house, you pay for it. But how many times have you found yourself on the floor with your kids? Stooping low to do things that, on it, let's be honest, you don't even really want to do. You know how many times I've sat around and dug out certain colors of Legos because he's building something and they all have to be blue? Is that a fun two and a half hours? No. It's borderline torture. 
But you know what? That's what he needed. That's a way to serve. Or when they get hurt or they're upset, what do you do? You get down at their level and meet them where they are. That's how Jesus operated. I have one more example I want to show you. And if, if I've already shown you this, just act like you haven't seen it before. Because when I learned this, I was really excited and I showed a few people. But in the hours before his death, Jesus had one last meal with his disciples. We call this the Last Supper. It was a Passover feast. They did a little bit of an early Passover because Jesus was going to be really, really busy at Passover. He was going to be hanging on a cross, dying for me. And he calls his disciples together. And remember, everything in the Greco-Roman world is about status and where you sit at the table. Now, I want to dispel a couple myths real quick. The Last Supper did not look like this. Okay, this is da Vinci's painting, beautiful work of art, historically wildly inaccurate. Who all sits on the same side of the table in the first place? That's a terrible way to have a conversation. What it really looked like was something more like this. Think of a parking lot and you parked around. This table right here is called a triclinium because you met on three sides of it and the end was usually open. It's either three tables or it would be a big table like this and they would bring the food and stuff in through this side. And you would recline at the table. We know this because it says they reclined at the table. To recline at the table meant you would lean on your left side and you would eat and drink with your right hand. Now, this is important. Jesus hosted Passover. It's his meal. And so we kind of have a, a diagram here of what the Last Supper kind of looked like. And you see there, there's, there's 13 spots because there's Jesus and the 12. Now, if I've already shown you this, don't cheat, okay? But we're going to do some Bible trivia. So Jesus is the host of the party, right? So the host has a seat at the table, a specific seat at the table. So Jesus, as host, he actually sits right here in this second spot. 
That is where Jesus sits. As host, he is the one who assigns the seat. Have you ever been to dinner with somebody and they're like, you sit there, you sit there, you sit there. That's kind of what would happen here. As host, he chooses who sits where. Now we know, now that we understand the reclining aspect, we know that there was somebody next to Jesus who could lean back and lay their head on his chest. Who was that? It was John. John leans back at one point and says, who is it? When asked who was going to betray. He lays his head on Jesus' chest. Now, that was really weird when you think about Da Vinci's thing, right? If you're sitting at the table and you're like, hey, Jesus, what's up? That's not really how it operated. He just kind of leaned back and whispered, who is it? And Jesus says, it's whoever I dip in the cup with. This is actually part of the Passover service where you would dip the Halil sandwich and you would into... Um, some bitterness, okay? And he says, whoever I dip with. So that person must be next to him, right? So who's that? Judas. So we have John here, and we have Judas right behind Jesus. Worship team, y'all can go ahead and come on up. Hang with me, this is really good. Now, all the way, there's another person in the conversation, okay? In this whole little interaction about who is going to betray, there is one more person who is part of this conversation. Do you guys know who that is? Peter. It's Peter when Jesus says, have I not chose 12 of you and yet one of you is going to betray me? Peter goes, hey, ask him who it is. So Peter was close, but not right next to Jesus. So Peter finds himself here, across the table from John. So he whispers to John, or he gets his attention, says, ask him. John leans his head against Jesus' chest and says, who is it? And Jesus said, whoever I dip with, that's who it is. And he hands that to Jesus. Or to Judas. Where you sit at the table matters. John is in the place as the best man or your right-hand man. Okay? In a wedding, he would be like a best man. That's the position of John. Judas, and this is a whole message in and of itself, Judas sits as the guest of honor. Jesus does nothing accidentally. Everything is intentional. And so Judas sits at the place as the guest of honor at the Last Supper. And all the way over 
in the 13th spot, we find Peter. Now, Peter is a fun character, isn't he? Don't you love Peter? Loud, boisterous, says dumb things, does dumb things. That's why I like Peter. He's a lot like me. But see, Peter was one of the first that was called. Peter is also the oldest of all the disciples. It's Peter who was the only one who had guts to step out of the boat. And it was Peter when Jesus says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And, he, and they said, well, some say John the Baptist, and, and some say you're Elijah, come back, and some, the other prophets. Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? It was Peter who piped up and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of John. For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you're no longer going to be Simon, but you're going to be Peter, Petros, the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It was Peter who stood up at Pentecost and gave his sermon and thousands and thousands of people came to, the, came to know Jesus. It was Peter who's walking around Jerusalem and his shadow was falling on people and they're just getting better. It's Peter who is the head of the church of Jerusalem. That Peter sits in the servant's spot. And I have a feeling that Peter was, and let's use the word we learned earlier today, indignant. He was mad. We know he's got this thing going with John. I should be there. And maybe you like John better than me, but surely I'm better than Judas. Why am I sitting here? Peter believes wholeheartedly that he is the one who is going to take the reins and lead this group of ragamuffins forward after Jesus' death and resurrection. That he's going to be in charge after Jesus leaves. And he finds himself in the servant's seat. But see, the servant has a job. What is that job? It's to wash the feet of the people in the house. But Peter's not gonna do it. It's below him. It's not my calling. This really sounds like a Judas thing. So he doesn't do it. And so they sit down at the table and they're chatting, talking about who's the greatest, probably. And Jesus stands up 
The Bible said he takes off his outer garment and he cinches it around his waist and he stoops low. And he begins to wash. And he washes John's feet. And he washes Judas' feet. You see those memes and things all the time that say, Judas ate too, talking about the Last Supper, and it's true. But his feet were also washed. And Peter has to sit around and watch as Jesus works his way around. For 11 other men, he has to watch. Didn't it start to make sense a little bit now? You see, when he gets to Peter, what's Peter's response? Mm -mm. No, not me. No, you're not washing my feet. That was my job. I didn't do it. And Jesus doesn't scold him. He doesn't make an example out of him. He doesn't ridicule him. He simply says, you don't understand what I'm doing, but one day you will. And if I don't wash you, then you don't have any part of me. And Jesus, I don't, or Peter, I don't believe this is a pious statement. I believe it's in his brokenness. says, then wash it all. Wash all of me. Peter, if you're going to lead, this is how you do it. Jesus said, you call me Lord, Master, rightfully so. And I've just washed your feet, so you should wash each other's feet. Stoop low. Empty yourself. After the resurrection, after Peter's denial, we see Jesus reinstating Peter on the seashore. And he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And that's a whole other message. We're not going to get into that. But look at Jesus' response all three times. Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Then serve. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then serve your brothers. Over and over, three times, he asks him and tells him, serve. Feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. Serve 